0: Money FM 89.3. Best of Breakfast. Morning Shot. Good morning. Thanks for staying with us here on Money FM 89.3. I'm Lin Lee. Welcome to Morning Shot. Further turmoil in the global chip space, the semiconductor showdown between the US and China stepped up a notch. And this comes as the US urges South Korean chip makers not to fill the chip shortfall in China if Beijing bans US memory chip maker Micron Technology from selling chips. And uh, the EU has also stepped into the fray not too long ago. The EU struck a deal to boost its semiconductor production as the block races to reduce its dependency on Asian suppliers. To analyze where exactly this global chip war is heading, we're glad to have on the line with us Professor Alex Capri, Senior Lecturer at the NUS Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and Business School and Research Fellow at Hinrich Foundation. Very good morning to you, Professor. Good morning, Lily. Good to have you with us on the show. Now, the complex semiconductor business has always been a battle between corporate giants. But now, wow, it's also a race among governments. The United States has time and again sought the buy-in from countries like South Korea, Japan. What's in it for the U.S. to have the support of chip makers from these countries?
1: Well, um, this is part of a much larger strategic geopolitical um, landscape that has been unfolding. And as a strategic element, both economically and from a national security perspective, semiconductors are playing a key role. They're at the center. They're at the base of all emerging and foundational technologies. So the U.S. has been uh, summarily weaponizing the supply chains around semiconductors when it comes to China because China has, um, you know, China is, is perhaps even decades behind uh, the, the key core countries when it comes to leading edge uh, chips. So in the case of Korea, Korea is one of really basically five countries, all of which are basically uh, historic U.S. allies, uh, that the U.S. is looking to sort of corral into its corner when it comes to its China policy. So that, that would include, of course, Uh, Japan, the Netherlands, Taiwan, we've mentioned Korea, and the U.S. So that's the group of five. So this is really all about geopolitics.
0: In this case, where exactly does South Korea sit in the global chips war? And do you think they're obliged to Washington's nudge?
1: Well, uh, this is a very difficult position for South Korean companies to be in, because on the one hand, they are a you know, again, as I mentioned, a security partner with uh, Washington. They are, in fact, um, you know working with Washington around uh, secure supply chains, around uh, you know reshoring of fabrication of chips. Uh, so Samsung is investing in the states when it comes to the fabrication of chips. But at the same time, China is a very important market and has been a very important market for for Korean companies. So the big question there uh, is when it comes to U.S. export controls and U.S. sanctions and how they will affect Korean companies, the big question is to what level of sophistication when it comes to chips and chip equipment will the U.S. look to enforce sanctions and export controls? Because if they push back, Washington that is, If Washington pushes back and looks to put export controls and sanctions on much older technology, what we call legacy uh, technology in the semiconductor space, that's going to shrink the market considerably for South Korean companies, as well as all these other companies from the countries that I mentioned. So for South Korea, it's a very, very difficult and awkward position to be in, as is the case for Japan and the Netherlands and, and Taiwan.
0: So as we uh, witness this great U.S.-China tech decoupling, what do you think China is going to do? Which other chip makers do you think China is likely to turn to in order to make up for its shortfalls, if not South Korea?
1: Well, this is a very difficult thing for China, right? Because if you look at um, what China uh, desperately needs, manufacturers like like, uh, SMIC, SMIC and YMTC, they need manufacturing equipment, right? Mm -hmm. to be able to produce chips even legacy chips right which go which go into automobiles and go into clean tech and telecoms and the Internet of things and so forth um, that's older technology but even for that technology they do need specific tooling and specific manufacturing equipment which they can only get essentially from American companies Japanese companies Dutch companies or Korean companies Taiwan has been essentially sidelined um, so Ah uh, the u s has put uh, a, a great deal of pressure on both the the Dutch and the Japanese, and they've they've come in line, They've stepped in line and said uh, they will adhere to u s controls for now. Um, so really, it's a wait and see uh, to see how this plays out with Korea, But uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be very difficult for them to try and and navigate away you know in the middle here.
0: And now we've got the EU in the picture too that the EU is taking on US and Asia with its uh 47 billion US dollar chip subsidy plan. Now how significant is the EU's latest move in pushing its semiconductor industry ahead to, you know, contend with the big chip making countries?
1: Well, this just further's the trend of uh, regionalization and localization when it comes to chip production and chip ecosystems. You know, it's not just geopolitics that's pushing that. It's lessons learned from the COVID, you know, events where we had single source supply chains come under extreme pressure or even be shut down. And then they're they're looking ahead when we start considering the impact that climate change is going to have on long extended supply chains when it comes to carbon footprints, for example, and pressures to move all long extended global supply chains locally, if possible to reduce carbon footprints. And then of course, the rise of the, the green industries uh, such as you know, electric vehicles and other forms of clean tech, all of these are now facing uh, pressure to try and localize. Uh, for those reasons that I just mentioned, but also particularly when we talk about electric vehicles, lithium batteries, those, mm-hmm. those types of things, those supply chains are highly geopolitical as well. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing Europe, uh, just as we're seeing the United States, uh, and, and Korea, which is, you know, Korea is really doubling down on trying to build a significant uh, semiconductor hub in South Korea. All of these countries are looking to, to ring fence and to localize or at the very least to friend shore, to partner with a handful of other uh, uh, countries and, and companies in those countries to build secure uh, near or even reshored semiconductor supply chains.
0: So sectors like automotive and electronics have also seen spillover effects due to this global chip shortage. How much bite will EU's subsidies be in helping to lift some part of that pressure?
1: Well, again, we are going to have to get used to uh, industrial policy and governmental intervention in markets when it comes to chips and when it comes to these critical uh, green sectors such as electric vehicles. Um, so. I would see the um, you know the input of significant amounts of money in Europe as incentives for public private partnerships, uh for incentives for um for private sector investment to piggyback along with that, that government money for you know increased R and D, the involvement of universities and research institutions. All of that is going to be um incentivized by the money that's being put in in Europe, but also, you know, with chips in the United States and and elsewhere.
0: Okay, based on what you've seen through the years, what's more vital to help push the chip industry forward, competition or cooperation?
1: Well, I think it's a little of both, Lindley. Uh, There has to be, you know, a fair amount of market dynamics, uh, you know, pushing innovation. But clearly, for the, the the size of investments that need to be made to to localize and regionalize these industries, governments are going to have to step up uh, in in a big way, and the, we're we're seeing the beginning of that. Um, so I, I think it's really it's a balance. Um, it, it's really about striking the right kind of uh, equilibrium. Markets themselves are going to be uh, you know at least in the near term are going to continue to seesaw between shortages and gluts, uh, you know, when it comes to um, trying to gauge how much to produce in a particular sector, right? So today mm-hmm. um, you know, we have a glut of chips mm-hmm. when it comes to things like smartphones and data centers and communications, right? This is this sort of post COVID slump, right? As, mm-hmm. as there's less demand for that sort of thing. So there's a glut of those kinds of chips, but there's still a shortage of chips when it comes to electric vehicles, for example. And so, it's going to take some time, and I'm talking about years, uh, for these these sort of regionalized uh, capacity building efforts to sort of normalize the markets a bit.
0: Now, this trend of uh, techno-nationalism, I think is a challenge for global diplomacy. So what parallels would you draw there, and is it possible for allies of the superpowers to strike a balance between security and economic considerations?
1: Well, that's the, you know, that's the task, right? Do so-called middle, middle powers and middle countries have enough agency to be able to uh, sort of continue to trade with whomever they want uh, to avoid having to make a binary choice, you know, choosing between, you know, the U.S. or China when it comes to, to markets? Um, you know, in some cases, uh, the answer will be no. Uh, there will be hard choices that will have to be made. Uh, in other cases, depending on the type of technology that we're talking about, depending on the markets and the availability of you know, other sources or multiple sources, um, then it will be a little bit different. But that all has to play
0: out. All right. Thank you very much for sharing your perspectives with us, Professor. We've been speaking with Professor Alex Capri, Senior Lecturer at the NUS Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and Business School and Research Fellow at Hinrich Foundation. Thank you very much.
1: To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg
0: or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.